Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens deals with the major themes of duality, revolution, and resurrection. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times in London and Paris as economic and political unrest lead to the American and French revolutions. The main characters in Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, Dr. Alexander Manette, Charles Darnay, and Sidney Carton are all recalled to life or resurrected in different ways as turmoil erupts. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 4. Congratulatory From the dimly lighted passages of the court, the last sediment of the human stew that had been boiling there all day was straining off when Dr. Manette, Lucy Manette, his daughter, Mr. Lorry, the solicitor for the defense, and its counsel, Mr. Striver, stood gathered round Mr. Charles Darnay just released congratulating him on his escape from death. It would have been difficult by a far brighter light to recognize in Dr. Manette, intellectual of face and upright of bearing, the shoemaker of the garret in Paris. Yet, no one could have looked at him twice without looking again even though the opportunity of observation had not extended to the mournful cadence of his low grave voice and to the abstraction that overclouded him fitfully without any apparent reason. While one external cause and that a reference to his long lingering agony would always as on the trial evoke this condition from the depths of his soul, it was also in its nature to arise of itself and to draw a gloom over him as incomprehensible to those unacquainted with his story as if they had seen the shadow of the actual Bastille thrown upon him by a summer sun when the substance was three hundred miles away. Only his daughter had the power of charming this black brooding from his mind. She was the golden thread that united him to a past beyond his misery and to a present beyond his misery and the sound of her voice The light of her face, the touch of her hand, had a strong beneficial influence with him almost always. Not absolutely always, for she could recall some occasions on which her power had failed, but they were few and slight, and she believed them over. Mr. Darnay had kissed her hand fervently and gratefully, and had turned to Mr. Striver, whom he warmly thanked. Mr. Striver, a man of little more than thirty, but looking twenty years older than he was, stout, loud, red, bluff, and free from any drawback of delicacy, had a pushing way of shouldering himself, morally and physically, into companies and conversations that argued well for his shouldering his way up in life. He still had his wig and gown on, and he said, 
scoring himself at his late client to that degree that he squeezed the innocent Mr. Lorry clean out of the group. I am glad to have brought you off with honor, Mr. Darnay. It was an infamous prosecution, grossly infamous, but not the less likely to succeed on that account. You have laid me under an obligation to you for life in two senses, said his late client, taking his hand. I have done my best for you, Mr. Darnay, and my best is as good as another man's, I believe. It clearly being incumbent on someone to say, much better, Mr. Lorry said it, perhaps not quite disinterestedly, but with the interested object of squeezing himself back again. You think so? said Mr. Striver. Well, you have been present all day, and you ought to know. You are a man of business, too. And as such, quoth Mr. Lorry, whom the council learned in the law had now shouldered back into the group, just as he had previously shouldered him out of it, dash as such I will appeal to Dr. Manette to break up this conference and order us all to our homes. Miss Lucy looks ill. Mr. Darnay has had a terrible day. We are worn out. Speak for yourself, Mr. Lorry, said Striver. I have a night's work to do yet. Speak for yourself. I speak for myself, answered Mr. Lorry, and for Mr. Darnay, and for Miss Lucy, and Miss Lucy. Do you not think I may speak for us all? He asked her the question pointedly and with a glance at her father. His face had become frozen, as it were, in a very curious look at Darnay, an intent look deepening into a frown of dislike and distrust, not even unmixed with fear. With this strange expression on him his thoughts had wandered away. My father, said Lucy, softly laying her hand on his. He slowly shook the shadow off and turned to her. Shall we go home, my father? With a long breath, he answered yes. The friends of the acquitted prisoner had dispersed under the impression which he himself had originated that he would not be released that night. The lights were nearly all extinguished in the passages, the iron gates were being closed with a jar and a rattle and the dismal place was deserted until tomorrow morning's interest of gallows, pillory, whipping post, and branding iron should repeople it. Walking between her father and Mr. Darnay, Lucy Manette passed into the open air. A hackney coach was called, and the father and daughter departed in it. Mr. Striver had left them in the passages to shoulder his way back to the robing room. Another person, who had not joined the group or interchanged a word with any one of them, but who had been leaning against the wall where its shadow was darkest, had silently strolled out after the rest and had looked on until the coach drove away. He now stepped up to where Mr. Lorry and Mr. Darney stood upon the pavement. So, Mr. Lorry. Men of business may speak to Mr. Darnay now? Nobody had made any acknowledgement of Mr. Carton's part in the day's proceedings, nobody had known of it. 
he was unrobed and was none the better for it in appearance. If you knew what a conflict goes on in the business mind when the business mind is divided between good-natured impulse and business appearances, you would be amused, Mr. Darnay. Mr. Lorry reddened and said, warmly, you have mentioned that before, sir. We men of business who serve a house are not our own masters. We have to think of the house more than ourselves. I know, I know, rejoined Mr. Carton carelessly. Don't be nettled, Mr. Lorry. You are as good as another, I have no doubt, better, I dare say. And indeed, sir, pursued Mr. Lorry, not minding him, I really don't know what you have to do with the matter. If you'll excuse me, as very much your elder, for saying so, I really don't know that it is your business. Business. Bless you, I have no business, said Mr. Carton. It is a pity you have not, sir. I think so, too. If you had pursued Mr. Lorry, perhaps you would attend to it. Lord love you, no, I shouldn't, said Mr. Carton. Well, sir, cried Mr. Lorry, thoroughly heated by his indifference, business is a very good thing and a very respectable thing. And, sir, if business imposes its restraints and its silences and impediments, Mr. Darnay, as a young gentleman of generosity, knows how to make allowance for that circumstance. Mr. Darnay, good night, God bless you, sir. I hope you have been this day preserved for a prosperous and happy life, chair there. Perhaps a little angry with himself, as well as with the barrister, Mr. Lorry bustled into the chair and was carried off to Telson's. Carton, who smelt of port wine and did not appear to be quite sober, laughed then and turned to Darnay. This is a strange chance that throws you and me together. This must be a strange night to you, standing alone here with your counterpart on these street stones? I hardly seem yet, returned Charles Darnay, to belong to this world again. I don't wonder at it, it's not so long since you were pretty far advanced on your way to another. You speak faintly. I begin to think I am faint. Then why the devil don't you dine? I dined, myself, while those numbskulls were deliberating which world you should belong to this or some other. Let me show you the nearest tavern to dine well at. Drawing his arm through his own, he took him down Ludgate Hill to Fleet Street and so up a covered way into a tavern. Here. They were shown into a little room where Charles Darnay was soon recruiting his strength with a good plain dinner and good wine while Carton sat opposite to him at the same table with his separate bottle of port before him and his fully half-insolent manner upon him. Do you feel, yet, that you belong to this terrestrial scheme again, Mr. Darnay? I am frightfully confused regarding time and place 
but I am so far mended as to feel that. It must be an immense satisfaction. He said it bitterly and filled up his glass again, which was a large one. As to me, the greatest desire I have is to forget that I belong to it. It has no good in it for me except wine like this nor I for it. So we are not much alike in that particular. Indeed, I begin to think we are not much alike in any particular, you and I. Confused by the emotion of the day and feeling his being there with this double of course deportment to be like a dream, Charles Darnay was at a loss how to answer, finally answered not at all. Now your dinner is done, Carton presently said. Why don't you call a health, Mr. Darnay? Why don't you give your toast? What health? What toast? Why, it's on the tip of your tongue. It ought to be, it must be, I'll swear it's there. Miss Manette, then. Miss Manette, then. Looking his companion full in the face while he drank the toast, Carton flung his glass over his shoulder against the wall where it shivered to pieces, then rang the bell and ordered in another. That's a fair young lady to hand to a coach in the dark, Mr. Darnay, he said, filling his new goblet. A slight frown and a laconic yes were the answer. That's a fair young lady to be pitted by and wept for by. How does it feel? Is it worth being tried for one's life to be the object of such sympathy and compassion, Mr. Darnay? Again, Darnay answered not a word. She was mightily pleased to have your message when I gave it her. Not that she showed she was pleased, but I suppose she was. The illusion served as a timely reminder to Darnay that this disagreeable companion had, of his own free will, assisted him in the stray of the day. He turned the dialogue to that point and thanked him for it. I neither want any thanks nor merit any, was the careless rejoinder. It was nothing to do in the first place and I don't know why I did it in the second. Mr. Darnay, let me ask you a question. Willingly, and a small return for your good offices. Do you think I particularly like you? Really, Mr. Carton, returned the other, oddly disconcerted, I have not asked myself the question. But ask yourself the question now. You have acted as if you do, but I don't think you do. I don't think I do, said Carton. I begin to have a very good opinion of your understanding. Nevertheless, pursued Darnay, rising to ring the bell, there is nothing in that, I hope, to prevent my calling the reckoning and our parting without ill blood on either side. Carton rejoining, nothing in life. Darnay rang. Do you call the whole reckoning? said Carton. On his answering in the affirmative, then bring me another pint of this same wine, drawer, 
and come and wake me at ten. The bill being paid, Charles Darnay rose and wished him good night. Without returning the wish, Carton rose too with something of a threat of defiance in his manner and said, a last word, Mr. Darnay, you think I am drunk? I think you have been drinking, Mr. Carton. Think? You know I have been drinking. Since I must say so, I know it. Then you shall likewise know why. I am a disappointed drudge, sir. I care for no man on earth, and no man on earth cares for me. Much to be regretted. You might have used your talents better. Maybe so, Mr. Darnay, maybe not. Don't let your sober face elate you, however, you don't know what it may come to. Good night. When he was left alone, this strange being took up a candle went to a glass that hung against the wall and surveyed himself minutely in it. Do you particularly like the man? He muttered at his own image. Why should you particularly like a man who resembles you? There is nothing in you to like, you know that. Ah, confound you. What a change you have made in yourself. A good reason for taking to a man that he shows you what you have fallen away from and what you might have been. Change places with him and would you have been looked at by those blue eyes as he was and commiserated by that agitated face as he was? Come on and have it out in plain words. You hate the fellow. He resorted to his pint of wine for consolation, drank it all in a few minutes and fell asleep on his arms with his hair straggling over the table and a long winding sheet in the candle dripping down upon him. Chapter V. The Jackal Those were drinking days and most men drank hard. So very great is the improvement time has brought about in such habits that a moderate statement of the quantity of wine and punch which one man would swallow in the course of a night without any detriment to his reputation as a perfect gentleman would seem, in these days, a ridiculous exaggeration. The learned profession of the law was certainly not behind any other learned profession in its bacchanalian propensities, neither was Mr. Stryver already fast shouldering his way to a large and lucrative practice behind his compeers in this particular any more than in the drier parts of the legal race. A favorite at the Old Bailey and eke at the sessions, Mr. Stryver had begun cautiously to hew away the lower staves of the ladder on which he mounted. Sessions and Old Bailey had now to summon their favorite, specially, to their longing arms and shouldering itself towards the visage of the Lord Chief Justice in the Court of King's Bench, the florid countenance of Mr. Stryver might be daily seen bursting out of the bed of wigs like a great sunflower pushing its way at the sun from among a rank garden full of flaring companions. It had once been noted at the bar that while Mr. Stryver was a glib man and an unscrupulous and a ready and a bold, he had not that faculty of extracting the essence from a heap of statements 
which is among the most striking and necessary of the advocate's accomplishments. But a remarkable improvement came upon him as to this. The more business he got, the greater his power seemed to grow of getting at its pith and marrow, and however late at night he sat carousing with Sidney Carton, he always had his points at his fingers' ends in the morning. Sidney Carton, idlest and most unpromising of men, was Stryver's great ally. What the two drank together, between Hillary Term and Michaelmas, might have floated a king's ship. Stryver never had a case in hand anywhere, but Carton was there, with his hands in his pockets, staring at the ceiling of the court, they went the same circuit, and even though they prolonged their usual orgies late into the night, and Carton was rumored to be seen at broad day, going home stealthily and unsteadily to his lodgings, like a dissipated cat. At last, it began to get about, among such as were interested in the matter, that although Sidney Carton would never be a lion, he was an amazingly good jackal, and that he rendered suit and service to Stryver in that humble capacity. Ten o'clock, sir, said the man at the tavern, whom he had charged to wake him dash ten o'clock, sir. What's the matter? Ten o'clock, sir. What do you mean? Ten o'clock at night? Yes, sir. Your honor told me to call you. Oh, I remember. Very well, very well. After a few dull efforts to get to sleep again, which the man dexterously combated by stirring the fire continuously for five minutes, he got up, tossed his hat on, and walked out. He turned into the temple and, having revived himself by twice pacing the pavements of King's Benchwalk and Paper Buildings, turned into the Striver Chambers. The Striver Clerk, who never assisted at these conferences, had gone home and the Striver Principal opened the door. He had his slippers on and a loose bedgown and his throat was bare for his greater ease. He had that rather wild, strained, seared marking about the eyes, which may be observed in all free livers of his class, from the portrait of Jeffreys downward, and which can be traced, under various disguises of art, through the portraits of every drinking age. You are a little late, memory, said Stryver. About the usual time, it may be a quarter of an hour later. They went into a dingy room lined with books and littered with papers where there was a blazing fire. A kettle steamed upon the hob and in the midst of the wreck of papers a table shone with plenty of wine upon it and brandy and rum and sugar and lemons. You have had your bottle, I perceive, Sydney. Two tonight, I think. I have been dining with the day's client, or seeing him dine it's all one. That was a rare point, Sidney, that you brought to bear upon the identification. How did you come by it? When did it strike you? I thought he was rather a handsome fellow, and I thought I should have been much the same sort of fellow if I had had any luck. 
Mr. Stryver laughed till he shook his precocious paunch. You and your luck, Sydney. Get to work, get to work. Sullenly enough, the jackal loosened his dress, went into an adjoining room, and came back with a large jug of cold water, a basin, and a towel or two. Steeping the towels in the water and partially wringing them out, he folded them on his head in a manner hideous to behold, sat down at the table, and said, Now I am ready. Not much boiling down to be done tonight, memory, said Mr. Stryver, gaily, as he looked among his papers. How much? Only two sets of them. Give me the worst first. There they are, Sydney. Fire away. The lion then composed himself on his back on a sofa on one side of the drinking table while the jackal sat at his own paper bestrewn table proper on the other side of it with the bottles and glasses ready to his hand. Both resorted to the drinking table without stint but each in a different way, the lion for the most part reclining with his hands in his waistband looking at the fire or occasionally flirting with some lighter document, the jackal with knitted brows and intent face so deep in his task that his eyes did not even follow the hand he stretched out for his glass which often groped about for a minute or more before it found the glass for his lips. Two or three times the matter in hand became so naughty that the jackal found it imperative on him to get up and steep his towels anew. From these pilgrimages to the jug and basin, he returned with such eccentricities of damp headgear as no words can describe, which were made the more ludicrous by his anxious gravity. At length, the jackal had got together a compact repast for the lion and proceeded to offer it to him. The lion took it with care and caution, made his selections from it and his remarks upon it, and the jackal assisted both. When the repast was fully discussed, the lion put his hands in his waistband again and lay down to meditate. The jackal then invigorated himself with a bumper for his throttle and a fresh application to his head and applied himself to the collection of a second meal. This was administered to the lion in the same manner and was not disposed of until the clock struck three in the morning. And now we have done, Sydney. Fill a bumper of punch, said Mr. Stryver. The jackal removed the towels from his head, which had been steaming again, shook himself, yawned, shivered, and complied. You were very sound, Sydney, in the matter of those crown witnesses today. Every question told. I always am sound, am I not? I don't gainsay it. What has roughened your temper? Put some punch to it and smooth it again. With a deprecatory grunt, the jackal again complied. The old Sydney Carton of old Shrewsbury School, said Stryver, nodding his head over him as he reviewed him in the present and the past, the old Seesaw Sydney. Up one minute and down the next, now in spirits and now in despondency. Ah, returned the other, 
sighing, yes. The same Sydney with the same luck. Even then, I did exercises for other boys and seldom did my own. And why not? God knows. It was my way, I suppose. He sat with his hands in his pockets and his legs stretched out before him looking at the fire. Carton, said his friend, squaring himself at him with a bullying air as if the fire grate had been the furnace in which sustained endeavor was forged and the one delicate thing to be done for the old Sydney Carton of old Shrewsbury school was to shoulder him into it, your way is, and always was, a lame way. You summon no energy and purpose. Look at me. Oh, botheration, returned Sydney with a lighter and more good-humored laugh, don't you be moral. How have I done what I have done, said Striver, how do I do what I do? Partly through paying me to help you, I suppose. But it's not worth your while to apostrophize me or the air about it. What you want to do, you do. You were always in the front rank and I was always behind. I had to get into the front rank. I was not born there, was I? I was not present at the ceremony, but my opinion is you were, said Carton. At this, he laughed again and they both laughed. Before Shrewsbury and at Shrewsbury and ever since Shrewsbury pursued Carton, you have fallen into your rank and I have fallen into mine. Even when we were fellow students in the student quarter of Paris, picking up French and French law and other French crumbs that we didn't get much good of, you were always somewhere and I was always nowhere. And whose fault was that? Upon my soul, I am not sure that it was not yours. You were always driving and riving and shouldering and passing to that restless degree that I had no chance for my life but in rest and repose. It's a gloomy thing, however, to talk about one's own past with the day breaking. Turn me in some other direction before I go. Well then, pledge me to the pretty witness, said Striver, holding up his glass. Are you turned in a pleasant direction? Apparently not, for he became gloomy again. Pretty witness, he muttered, looking down into his glass. I have had enough of witnesses today and tonight, who's your pretty witness? The picturesque doctor's daughter, Miss Minette. She pretty? Is she not? No. Why, men alive, she was the admiration of the whole court. Wrought the admiration of the whole court. Who made the old Bailey a judge of beauty? She was a golden-haired doll. Do you know, Sidney, said Mr. Striver, looking at him with sharp eyes and slowly drawing a hand across his florid face. Do you know, I rather thought, at the time, that you sympathized with the golden-haired doll and were quick to see what happened to the golden-haired doll? 
quick to see what happened. If a girl, doll or no doll, swoons within a yard or two of a man's nose, he can see it without a perspective glass. I pledge you, but I deny the beauty. And now I'll have no more drink, I'll get to bed. When his host followed him out on the staircase with a candle to light him down the stairs, the day was coldly looking in through its grimy windows. When he got out of the house, the air was cold and sad, the dull sky overcast, the river dark and dim, the whole scene like a lifeless desert. And wreaths of dust were spinning round and round before the morning blast, as if the desert sand had risen far away and the first spray of it in its advance had begun to overwhelm the city. Waste forces within him and a desert all around, this man stood still on his way across a silent terrace and saw for a moment, lying in the wilderness before him, a mirage of honorable ambition, self-denial, and perseverance. In the fair city of this vision, there were airy galleries from which the loves and graces looked upon him gardens in which the fruits of life hung ripening, waters of hope that sparkled in his sight. A moment, and it was gone. Climbing to a high chamber in a well of houses, he threw himself down in his clothes on a neglected bed, and its pillow was wet with wasted tears. Sadly, sadly, the sun rose. It rose upon no sadder sight than the men of good abilities and good emotions, incapable of their directed exercise, incapable of his own help and his own happiness, sensible of the blight on him, and resigning himself to let it eat him away.